0: podcast i'm lauren and i'm michael oh baby you guys ready for uh, a case that we probably should have done a long time ago one that's been suggested before long uh, overdue but, i don't know i was into it this week
1: and that's what matters
0: as long as lauren's into it we'll do it that's right that's right so we're doing old herb <laughs> old herb we're going to talk some topics that we've never really gotten into mm-hmm. uh uh you know a bit of a urine fetish uh-huh. some uh, autoerotic asphyxiation oh okay We've lost we've lost some great people to that, unfortunately. Yeah, that's have. a road that I'm afraid to go down. I will never choke myself uh, during any uh, masturbation or sex. I, that that is my promise to you guys. That, well, thank you, Lauren. Thank you. I'm I'm just afraid of if whether I'll like it because if I like it, then I, there's no going back from there. Right. Well,
1: people that like it uh, assume I think that everyone will like it. I think it's yeah. just whether or not you're willing to take that risk. I think taking that risk is part of the excitement. Right, but yeah, it's because just you got to take
0: it a little further each time. You got to be on the verge of passing out, and then you right. know, I mean? it's one of those times you go a little too far. I've been choked out enough in jujitsu, I don't need to add it into my uh, my, my sex life as well. <laughs> well, it seems and like it a, might get a little weird when I do jujitsu uh, right, as well. Like, yeah, uh, you might start liking it too much. <laughs> I'm getting hard on right now when it's I'm getting like, choked. It's not cool. It's
1: like, damn, Lauren, Lauren's not even trying <laughs> to win anymore. It's like, what the fuck, <laughs> Lauren, tap out, tap out. <laughs> is he smiling? <laughs> right.
0: Oh man, I didn't expect this conversation to go this way. But if you're not uh, intrigued by this episode thus far, um, we you know even if you've heard about her old Herb Baumeister, yeah, you know you haven't heard us do a take on it. So that's, let's let's get into this. That's right, guys. Let's go. I said to my son, they're gonna hit that raccoon with the spray gun, and sure enough, they just striped right over its face and neck. You know, didn't even move it. You have know, no effort to you know get it out of the way. So, I happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot at the thing. This was just, you know, uh, the painter should have had a chalk line drawn around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. case this week is a fairly big name in the true crime world and fits the mold of uh, cases that we did a lot of early on. Gay serial killer working in the 80s and into the early 90s. Right. um, Herbert Baumeister. And I also had the double life thing going on here. Oh, yeah. Which I think was common for gay serial killers back then. You have to wonder how much of society... created these men, you know?
1: I, I was just about to say, I, I think the double life thing, you didn't even have to be a serial killer. It's just if you were a gay man in this area, in this time, you were living somewhat of a double life, whether you were committing a crime even or not.
0: Even more so, her because of where he where he grew up Yeah, it, with the Bible Belt, as opposed to like, you know, some of the Randy Kraft and those guys. Cal- California was much more accepting, even in the 70s and 80s, oh, absolutely. of a gay lifestyle than in the Bible Belt, which is still not necessarily that great to be gay and live in, I would say. I agree. I agree. Indiana is one of those weird states. Like, they kind of...
1: They're not really a southern state, but they still kind of have a lot of those same, those
0: same convictions. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Up there. They're, they're very conservative. Very conservative yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. But uh, Herb Baumeister, um, on the surface, he was a straight-laced, business-owning uh, family man living on a basically a mansion in an 18-acre estate um, during his crime spree uh, called Fox Hollow Farms. What is it with Fox... Like Fox Farm, yeah. Like just, fox uh, also, yeah, dude. Like I, I couldn't help but think about Dupont as well because of Team Fosca. and there was some similarities in their personality as well. Indeed, um, indeed. And their physical attributes—they were both tall, lanky, kind of gangly dudes, mm. living on a fox farm. Yeah, uh, one was was Foxcatcher, the other being Fox Hollow Farms, but very very similar. Very
1: similar, very eerie, and there's a lot of supernatural shit associated with Fox Hollow Farms. Maybe we'll we'll dive into that on another time. I'm thinking about doing an episode on Strange and Unexplained about that to kind of supplement this episode. So
0: I was unaware of that, I, I, but I did uh, briefly watch a little bit of a YouTube video before we started this. Yeah, and it looked like there was a group of people that were in the dark inside the, the mansion, and they were going to go exploring. Is there some sort of a supernatural element to it? There is. Uh, actually, I, I I swear to God, I felt like I found more about the supernatural element in looking
1: for info on Herb um, than I actually found on Herb. Uh, hmm. But yeah, there's there's all types of ghost sightings and different supernatural things that are associated with Fox Hollow Farms. So I think it would be a fun thing to dive into. And of course, it's, it's in relation to Herb's horrible crimes that happened there.
0: Well, yeah, so of course. I mean, yeah. if you believe in supernatural, if you believe in ghosts and things, this place would definitely be haunted oh, because there were skeletons all over the forest surrounding his his large home. Yes.
1: And a lot of these men that were killed on this property were very young, just starting out in life. So if you believe, you know, ghosts stick around because they have unfinished business in their life, <laughs> these guys yeah, probably no had a lot. <laughs>
0: I mean, seriously. yeah, and several of them um, have not been identified as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a part of their unfinished business. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, yeah, I didn't get into much of the supernatural stuff because I didn't do a ton of like looking around the internet. I got a book. Yeah. And, and studied a few articles. But I, the book I got was called The Double Life of a Serial Murderer The, Serial, uh, the Life of Serial Killer Herb Baumeister by Jack Smith. Nice. Um, it was a good, quick read. It was a little over two hours on Audible. Okay. Um, so I got the audio version of it. And it was mainly just um, it, was, straightforward? it got straight to the point. Yeah. Yeah, it got straight to the point. Not a lot of fluff, just um, all the, the gritty details that you need. Right, like a Jack Rosewood or a Philip Carlo novel.
1: Yeah. Right to the point.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like it. That's great for studying for a show like this. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Because I'll, I'll, I'll add the fluff. We'll add the jokes and all that stuff, but uh, <laughs> I just need the details. That's right. So uh, Herbert Richard Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947, and shares a birthday with Jackie Chan and Russell Crowe. No freaking way. Uh, this, this, this page of, uh, we've talked about it before, but uh, the birthday thing, when you, you pull up the pages of famous, famous birthdays. Yeah. The fact that there was some, some, <laughs> some lady from like uh, TikTok or YouTube that was ahead of Jackie Chan, I just wanted to punch my screen. <laughs> I was like, I've never heard of this person. And like you can't tell it's, me more people know who this is than Jackie Chan. You got to be fucking kidding Well, me.
1: maybe nowadays, you know, it's, it's relevancy. You know, you, you got to stay guess. relevant. When's the last time I'm you... I'm just the s-
0: old guy, like, yeah, know, my line. I know.
1: When's the last time you've seen Jackie Chan in something, though? Man, what is he it's up been a while, to but now? also
0: Russell Crowe, t- Crow too. I don't know. Yeah, both of them. Both, both of them. They were both, like, down the list underneath a bunch of TikTok and YouTube people. Yeah, definitely legendary A-list actors, both of them. Yeah. yeah. Jackie Chan was the man in the 90s. God, too. I love and Jackie Chan He did all Chan his own movies. stunts. Loved it right and he did all of his own stunts I mean the guy would do like 50 takes if it took you know if that's what it took to like do some crazy yeah. jump off of two walls and land up on the top oh shit. I know I love the way he fought with shit and around the room like it was just so fun yeah. he would like put some
1: guy's arm in a ladder and then like twist the ladder and break it or some shit it's just yeah I, and I he was stunts. more than
0: just an action person too he was very charismatic could have been yeah. successful in other avenues of film as well no doubt no doubt even if even not in action movies he could have he could have been like a yeah. really cool detective. Or a private eye. obviously very good in comedy as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Freaking Rush Hour one of the one of the classics. Dude, seriously underrated. Rush Hour. Man, I want to watch that again. I Get know. Right?
1: Where is this coming out of my mouth? <laughs> Love Rush Hour, man. The, the, the chemistry between those two. Who saw that coming? They're fucking amazing right. together. Yeah.
0: Moving on. Moving on. So he was born uh, in 1947. Um, his father was an anesthesiologist, and his mother was a homemaker. Herb was the oldest of four children, and he, by all accounts, had a normal, fairly uneventful childhood uh, Hmm. until he started getting into his hormonal teenage years, and then there were some definitely big red flags, Okay, I would say. Yeah. Uh, When he reached his teens, things changed. His behavior became increasingly bizarre and erratic. He became antisocial and withdrew from being with friends and family. Um, He did have a close friend that gave us some insight into the weirdness of young Herb that kind of reminded me a bit of Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, this close friend that he had, keep in mind, they were in like grade school at this time Mm -hmm. and says that Herb used to ponder what it would be like to taste uh, human, human urine. Mm. Not the most common. I mean, look, Uh, we do some weird stuff when we're young teenagers, but that's not something I've ever pondered. I'm sure you haven't either. uh, Not that I can think
1: of. Now I have thought about it in like a life or death situation, you know, I'm like, oh man, what if I was out, you know, would I be able to drink my urine? How often can you drink your urine? How many times? (laughs) You no, know, I've like yeah. I've thought about that type of thing in a survival situation, but never for for pleasure. No,
0: I, I don't think I want to drink urine for pleasure. And mm-hmm. I've never the difference is as well. Like I think we've some of us, like you said, have pondered what it'd be like to drink our own urine in a survival situation. He was pondering what it was like to drink someone else's urine. Is definite, I've never oh considered that. Nope. Nope. Nope.
1: Nope. Nope. No. Nope. Nope.
0: And uh, also much like Jeffrey Dahmer, he was obsessed with decay and death. Uh, He once picked up a dead bird, I think it was a crow, Uh on his way to school. Like, was just giddy. He saw this dead crow and just ran over, picked it up, stuffed it in his pocket on his way to school, where he then proceeded to leave it on his teacher's desk. So a bit of a prankster as well. It's just common with serial killers, isn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it seem like a lot of them are pranked? Also, Dahmer was like this as well.
1: Yeah, they want to get a shock out of somebody. You know, that's something that that is instilled in them at a young age. They want to do things that shock other people. Mm-hmm. yeah they get off on that
0: very true uh another time he was reported to have been caught urinating on a teacher's desk <laughs> which here is we go with the hilarious urine. because he also does it to his boss later on he gets fired from the bureau yeah, of motor yeah, vehicles yeah. for doing the same fucking thing <laughs>
1: yes it's like wow you've been doing this for a long time mm-hmm. and these are two these are just two examples you know if he did it once when he was a kid and once still as an adult if that's still what's coming to your mind Oh, he's pissing all, oh, all over he's everything. He's pissing everywhere in life. Oh yeah, this guy's probably yeah. like pissing in plants in the corner of his office
0: and shit. No, yeah. this is just weird. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Something was clearly wrong. Um, it's he started attending uh, high school at North Central High and was active in biology, geology, government, international relations, and chess clubs. Um, several sources mention her being taken and being evaluated by mental health experts as a teen his father was very concerned with him uh, about his oldest son right basically throughout his life his father knew something was wrong um he took him to get evaluated you how much you wonder how much of this is the fact that his maybe his father was worried about his sexuality whether signs that he his son was gay and he was trying to yes figure out what was wrong with him maybe i i wonder about that that could because, be because you know that's very common back in these days yes it is yes it is shit i know i know families now
1: more recent who thought that they had uh mentally ill kids growing up or kids that had some type Mm -hmm. of issues and it turned out they were just homosexual (laughs) yeah i mean yeah it's it's pretty crazy especially in and like you say in the bible belt that that plays a lot into it it really does
0: yeah and he's growing up through the 50s and 60s exactly exactly it's a tough time Um, so these sources mention him being diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was a teenager and not receiving any further treatment. Mm. However, that wasn't in the book. I've seen it several places, including Wikipedia. I'm um, not sure how much truth there is to that. I know that he later is taken in by his father to, to get help, but that was when he, after he'd gotten married in his early 20s. Right. So take it with a grain of salt, well, but this is, it's, I did hear that. It's not hard to accept that, though, as information. I mean, no. these type
1: mental health wasn't, wasn't deemed important. You know what I mean? Even a even a diagnosis like schizophrenia is probably like, oh, they just blamed it on him being a teenager. You know? Oh, he'll grow mm-hmm. out of it. It's just a lot of hormonal things going on right now. He'll grow out of it. It'll be fine. I could see that. Right. But it is odd that it wasn't in the book. That seems like a very important
0: fact to have in your book. Maybe they just couldn't confirm yep. it. Right. Yeah. And it could have also been one of those things we've talked about in the past where, you know, one source mentions something like that. Yeah. Maybe it's not true, and then everybody else just kind of copy and pastes onto their shit, too. Oh, yeah. That shit can get blown up. The book seemed to be very well uh, researched. There was a lot of stuff in this book that, um, you know, they had direct, uh, like, there's, they talked about uh, his his time at the, the the later stint he does in a mental institution and they, they they talked about exact dates and the actual location whereas i just heard his you know every other source just said oh as a teenager his father took him to get help and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia no mentions of a time period or actual location of where this went down okay so okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna side with the book mainly. That's why I thought it was worth mentioning because most sources say that, but uh, it it wasn't in the book.
1: Now it is also important to remember that his dad may be more in tune to this than other people because he was in the medical field. He was an anesthesiologist, so maybe his dad was a little more in tune to mental health and just health in Mm -hmm. general. So maybe he was showing concern
0: this early for his son. Yeah. So, m- minus the you know kind of weirdness and stuff, he he would ultimately graduate from high school in 1965, and began attending Indiana Re- University, which is actually pre- pretty prestigious school. Yeah, still is. Uh, yeah, and while at IU, he met his future wife, Juliana Seder, uh, during his freshman year, and they would be inseparable for many years to come. Uh, after that, mm-hmm. they reportedly shared strong conservative views and were drawn to each other. Juliana and Herb would eventually marry in 1971 when he was 24 years old. Okay, pretty typical. Their relationship was a bit of a a facade. It was more of a cover for him to to you know hide his homosexuality. In my opinion, it was like this is what you do, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that seemed pretty obvious to me as well. He was definitely feeling the pressure to be normal at this time. Yes. Uh, Briefly after the wedding, though, we see some signs that you know all is not right, right with Herb still. you know, On the surface, things look fine, but he's not doing well. After the wedding, he had become despondent and spent a week on the couch, frequently crying. And this is when his father, according to the book, uh, checked him into a mental facility, and that was Larue Carter Medical Facility, which has a checkered past, if you look into it, yeah. that, uh, a lot of uh, history of abusing their patients and things like that. However, Herb never mentioned anything happening along those lines while he was there, mm-hmm. but he hit a lot of stuff in his memory bank, in his skeleton closet, if you will. Yes, he did. Um, so who knows? Maybe something did happen to him there. But he spent a few months there, and his wife stayed by his side, frequently visiting him, and was fully supportive of him throughout several instances uh, in his life where he you know, has breakdowns or has bizarre behavior, getting later fired from the Bureau of Motor Vehicles for peeing on his boss's desk. She stands by him for a long time through a lot of stuff. Yeah, she's a trooper, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Um, while at LaRue Carter, he would be diagnosed with compulsive disorder, which is kind of a catch-all term for general depression or mental illness at the time. Yeah. Like we said, they're still trying to figure out mental illness i feel like these times i feel like by
1: definition and especially in the 60s you could probably give every single serial killer or repeat criminal compulsive disorder i think it's just like you say it's just such a broad term that you're just throwing out there yeah. like they have no impulse control they're just compulsive they act and then you know and then they're a completely different person i think they saw that right. as schizophrenia when he's
0: really just a sociopath right <clears throat> I agree. So Julie and Herb uh, briefly rented an apartment, but after they both became gainfully employed, they moved up to a moderate home in Indy's, on Indy's uh, second, 72nd Street. Uh, Julie had received her bachelor's degree in education science and was working at a teacher at Broad River High School. Herb, meanwhile, was never able to finish college. He tried several times and yeah. just didn't, didn't have the drive or the focus during this time to complete his education and so, after several attempts at that and failing, he settled for a job at the BMV, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it the DMV now, I feel like most of the time, but. Um, I think it
1: depends on your state. See, we call it the DMV here in North Carolina too, but uh, mm-hmm. apparently, I looked this up and it's apparently, still in the, a lot of places in the Midwest and in Indiana in, in particular, they
0: should call it the Bureau. Okay. Instead of the district. Makes sense. I mean, because it is a government entity, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Bureau sounds more than, like governmental than Department of Motor Vehicles does. Yeah,
1: yeah, I guess it does. <laughs>
0: Department seems very dumb um, down. Yeah, he became a clerk, uh, but slowly began working his way up the ladder, eventually earning the title program director. Um, meanwhile, the, ch- the couple's first child came in 1979 with the birth of their daughter that they named Marie, and in the following years, they would have Eric in 1981 and Emily in 1984, which is an unbelievable uh, success rate considering... Julie would later claim that after 25 years of marriage, they'd only had sex five to six times by her estimation. Whoa. And she also said that she had never even seen Herb naked. Oh, my that he God. he always changed in the bathroom into his pajamas. And, like, I'm guessing they had sex in the dark with the covers on. Uh he was maybe even a hole in the sheets Oh, (laughs) he was always wearing
1: he was always wearing those blue jean shorts like tobias on arrested development you ever watch that show
0: right no Oh my god
1: david cross plays this character who never wants to get who never is seen naked and so like even under his clothes he wears these cut off blue jean shorts that fit like super skin tight it's like (laughs) that's like his underwear that he never takes off never takes them off that's hilarious i just imagined that as soon as i heard about her that is so But, yeah, rude. I mean,
0: what a, what a success rate, though, to have three kids after only having sex five to six times. That's
1: an average of sex that's like once over every five years. Do you realize that? That's crazy. That's insane. Oh, as far
0: as having sex. Yeah.
1: Are those kids even yeah. his? You know?
0: Like, man. I don't know, I feel man. like
1: that's a legit question. Yeah. Wow. That's the, When I, I told my wife that statistic when I was sitting at the table reading over this timeline this morning, and I was like, listen to this. She was like, those kids probably aren't his. I was like, you think? (laughs) I was like, wow, I didn't think about that.
0: Maybe the milkman. Who knows? Who knows? That's crazy. Um, So these early years of marriage seemed to be going well for her, but by all outward appearances, he was successfully keeping his true desires buried deep. Um, However, then he lost his longstanding job at the BMV. He'd been there for, you know, I think six years or something at this point. Um, However, he he became quite fond of his younger coworkers and commonly hung out with them at parties at one of the underlings rural properties on weekends. So that's just weird. He, he was kind of the boss and he was hanging out with a lot of his coworkers who were beneath him in the chain and, and drinking with them and they would go to some farmhouse. And at one of these parties, her became heavily intoxicated and at one point grabbed one of his coworkers keys. Yeah. A guy named Gregory Moe and proceeded to drive all over the countryside hammered, um, During the drive, Mm. he ended up having a minor accident with another vehicle, at which point, surprising his coworkers, fled from the scene, speeding away, and telling them not to say anything. Oh, my God. Obviously, this wouldn't have boded well, him getting into a drunk accident with his coworkers. He probably would have lost his job. Yeah, definitely. um, Right then. So the next day, uh, Herb would go to Mo's place and take his car again. Oh, my God. Uh, Mo Mo assumed that, you know, Herb was going to be taking his car to get fixed, you know. right. He, he did not do that. Uh, three days would go by, and Herb had not contacted Mo. Mo hadn't heard from him, so he uh, reported the vehicle stolen at that point.
1: Do you think he, you know,
0: and, looking back in hindsight, do you think he used his car to commit a crime? Probably, right? Dude, I didn't even think, I did not even consider that. But, you know, there's so many different reports of vehicles from the witnesses that saw Herb leave. There's The victims that left these night these gay clubs yeah. that Herb would would kill a lot of times yeah. it seemed like there was different vehicles that yep. were reported it wasn't always the same car and
1: different tags sometimes he had ohio tags yeah and from different states that's so, a
0: good i bet he did dude i bet he killed at least one person with that car he probably over those did
1: three days. He, he took the car at the party to see what mo would do and since mo didn't yeah. freak out he was like okay well fine i'll borrow his car again the next day but this mm-hmm. is just so weird man i i don't know I've never wanted to hang out with my bosses in any job I've ever had. Like when we've had like parties and extra shit, I'm just like, I I don't know. It's just weird to me to go hang out with my boss somewhere outside of work. That relationship always just, it doesn't end well because it, one ends up taking advantage of the other. Typically. It's like if you become friends, either your boss takes advantage of you and calls you in when he has nobody else or the other way around that employee becomes really close with the boss. And now they can slack off and, you know, do less work and be held less responsible at work because they're friends with the boss. I feel like either way, yep. that those relationships just don't work. And this is like the worst example or the best example of it not working, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is not your typical example. No, but yeah. <laughs> no, but
1: this is, yeah, this is worst case scenario, hanging out but with boss. But that's such
0: a good point, man, that the book didn't even think to bring up is that that car was probably used uh, to, to you know yeah
1: three days time that's plenty of time to go yeah. use it go because, pick up somebody
0: clean it bring it back because I mean it is believed and I, I believe 100% that that her biomeister we're going to talk about this a lot later is the i-70 killer or at least yes. he played a large role in those I think it could have been multiple people yeah there was there was other ser- serial killers working in the area at the time Um, but her, it sure seems to fit the mold of her. Yeah, it does. Um, And he lived in that area. And like the prior to him having Fox hollow farms, he didn't have such a convenient place to dump the bodies when he was living at his normal house in town in Indianapolis, not in this big rural property. If, if he's not the I-70 killer, he done a large part of the I-70 killings. And and that's my, yeah, yeah, that's my opinion. And this would fit in that time period. Yes. It fits very well uh, because... those bodies were being dumped. Right. And we'll talk about that more later, uh,
1: you know, yeah. about around the time he buys his his new property.
0: Yeah. So he takes his co-worker's uh, car, Gregory Moe, who he had wrecked the car the night before. He takes it for three days and ditches it somewhere. I don't know. I, 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 he may have burned it or whatever, but uh, Moe would end up reporting the car stolen and get actually a payout from the insurance company for the stolen car that never, never turned up. But over the coming months... Uh, Gregory and his other co-workers would come clean to the, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles about what had happened that night, um, and Herb would actually become arre- get arrested for this once the truth came out about it. Um, he would be arrested for theft and conspiracy to commit theft. And for whatever reason, though, the, the same co-workers that had gotten him arrested ended up being uncooperative on the stand, and Herb would end- ultimately be found not guilty. So he'd get off the hook for well, the theft of that car.
1: Again... He's he's their boss,
0: right? I yeah. mean, why yeah. would they want and to go against And at this point, him? he was still employed by the Vero Motor Vehicles yeah. until not long after that when he urinates on his boss's desk. Yeah,
1: right, right, right.
0: <laughs> but before that, they really didn't want to go against their boss. You know, why would you want to? Yeah. They, they don't
1: want to leave their job. You still right. got to, you can't testify against him and then go work under him the next
0: day. Well, I mean, if they had, t- if, to be fair, if they'd testified against him and he would have gotten convicted for this, th- surely the bureau would have fired him, right? And then he wouldn't be their boss anymore. That's the way I would have looked at it. True. Maybe they liked him a little bit. He'd be going to jail and then he'd be fired. And yeah. so, but whatever. Yeah, maybe they did like him. Yeah. Maybe they liked him or were intimidated by him. I don't know. I don't know what the, I mean, maybe he got to them on the side and was like, you better not testify against me or else right. who knows. But yeah. Um, so yeah, the final straw of the, for the BMV was after Herb uh, was accused of urinating on his boss's desk after he had after the boss had left for the, left for the day. Oh my God! Herb had gone in and seen a letter uh, sitting on the center of his boss's desk that was uh, uh, assigned or it was basically uh, set to be delivered to the governor of Indiana, and uh, <laughs> so, but it was <laughs> he it in... just couldn't help himself and and pissed right on that letter on his boss's desk.
1: Was the letter about him? Was the letter about Herb? No, no. no. He just he just had a,
0: a bone to pick either with the governor of Indiana or yeah. with his boss or both. I just don't see how that's the first thing that comes to your mind. You know, I mean,
1: <laughs> I don't know why you don't also, just grab does it and s- rip it up and throw it in the trash. Why are you going to piss on it? Like I just
0: don't. Also, what does it say about Herb that the, everybody just immediately knew it was him that had done it and fired him <laughs> over it? Like they didn't have video evidence. This is like right. prior to you know surveillance being everywhere.
1: Yeah. They knew immediately who pissed on yeah. the desk. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Herb pisses on everything. It's, it's definitely Herb. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, so he would be fired from the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, which would ultimately turn out to be the best thing that could have happened to Herb financially uh, because his next venture uh, would turn out to be much more fruitful. He, he wound up uh, working for a thrift shop uh, following his firing from the uh, BMV, and soon realized the potential available in a place like that. He and Julie talked it over, and based on Herb's acquired knowledge of running such an outlet, so he worked for this this thrift, thrift store for three years, and you know was like, "I can do this. I can own one of these." and decided, with the help of his mother and his mother, which uh uh-huh. you know, when you look at a lot of articles, it's like he was a successful businessman that opened this chain of uh, department stores. Yeah was he was though? Wildly successful, and it's like he ripped off the idea. And even the name from another successful chain of department stores, yep. and he got a three hundred fifty thousand dollars loan from his mother in order to open the first one. So he didn't come up with the brilliant idea of save uh, save a lot. Right, he just took the E off save because there was already the Save a Lot franchise, which is still around today. Yeah, the grocery stores, um, and has tons of them. Yeah. yeah, there's tons of them. That was there. That had that had been started in 1977, I believe. The original Save a Lot. Oh. He started one in 1988 uh, called Save a Lot with no E on the save. Yeah. (laughs) And opened two of these locations in East Indianapolis. And they actually were a raging success for a number of years because they were extremely clean. um, And he also had a good reputation for donating to local kids' charities and stuff. Right, of course. um, So people felt good to to shop there. And the prices were very cheap. So people that were, um, you know, not. Uh, affluent you know the, the kind of right right people that were struggling financially were able to shop there i mean and so. thrift stores they're a hundred
1: percent profit man the ceo of goodwill don't look up how he lives it'll make you pissed off like <laughs> don't don't look it up it's crazy how much yeah. money these fucking thrift stores make well they get all the clothes all the
0: shit that they're selling donated exactly so I mean, it's all profit that's right? what
1: i'm saying and then three, but three hundred and fifty thousand from his mom in nineteen eighty eight. Lord, what's that? What's that yeah. equivalent to now? Qu- uh, three quarters of a million dollars or something? It's got to be.
0: Now that was from the book, and then I've seen elsewhere that it was a much smaller amount of money that he used to start it. But I, mm. it, it's not cheap to to open a department store like from scratch. No, you know what I mean, I, th- I saw something like he grew. He took five thousand dollars and started it. And I'm like, I don't think that would be able you would be able to start much with that even in 1988 no not unless you just had found a really cheap storefront that you could rent
1: but you would still have to have a collection of merchandise you yeah. know what i mean you can't just you can't just start a you can't just start a thrift store with nothing you
0: can it's clear that his parents first. were very well off i'll say that it's clear that his parents well, were yeah. very well his mother had a a, a home uh, a, a waterfront condo that they had just for like vacation it was like their second home yeah um but, yeah, I, I, I'm going to lean with the book side on this one as well, getting a large loan from his mother to open the first location, which was a raging success, and he ended up op- opening another location in Indianapolis, and they were doing quite well. Yeah. And they had this sudden influx of cash, so the Bowmeisters decided to upgrade their living situation. The next home they purchased was, by all intents and purposes, a mansion and would later be the infamous site for the crimes that Herb would commit. Fox Hollow Farm, uh, which was where they would move, I think it was like uh, – was it like ninety miles north of Indianapolis or something? In a much, I think it was warmer. only twenty miles north.
1: It was it was pretty close. Oh, to was it? it? Yeah,
0: wasn't bad. Oh yeah, yeah, twenty miles north of Indianapolis. Um, the home was a majestic ninety five hundred square foot Tudor style building, sitting on sixteen acres of lush green pastures, hmm. located in Westfield, Indiana, about twenty miles north of Indianapolis, um, which gave the young family privacy without being too far from the city. It was complete with a five car garage and an indoor swimming pool. Jesus, so quite a step up from. The way they've been living before.
1: That is a mansion. Anybody that has an indoor swimming pool in 1988.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and th- it was a shame that they bought this place because it was perfectly manicured and well kept prior, but Uh-oh. after the Baumeisters moved in, it just fell apart. Like it, it was they the all of the landscaping was overgrown and um the inside of the house was in shambles, basically. It was just like shit stacked everywhere, boxes and all kinds. Of, they never really Seemingly settled in and fully unpacked over the years. Or yeah. that was just the way that they lived. Yeah. Um
1: well they probably they had the money to afford the property, but maybe they didn't have the money or the time to maintain it. That's maintain that's it. something a lot of people don't understand when they when they move into a bigger property. Like, just because you oh, yeah. can afford it financially doesn't mean you can afford the upkeep
0: or will have the time for the upkeep if you can't All afford someone. ancillary stuff around it is, yeah, the yeah. The, the utilities are going to be five times what they, you know, what you're used to paying right. and the maintenance of the, I had an acre property um, in Vegas and just keeping up the weeds when it would rain, the weed, like our front yard was so massive that our, it would just be filled with weeds. And if you didn't get on it quick, I would end up spending like my entire Saturday pulling fucking weeds. Yeah. I did not have the money to pay a landscaping company to do that. Right. That's the thing; it's like you just don't think about this kind of stuff. And you had, and your yard was gravel, right? Wasn't it rock?
1: Yep. And so that was yep. just the weeds that were popping through. Yep. Yeah, it's it's
0: it's a lot of maintenance. I don't think him and his yep. family were prepared for that. Yep. So uh, as we briefly mentioned a minute ago, Herb's mother had a lakefront condo about eighty miles north of of uh, where they lived, the Fox House. Uh, uh, Fox Hollow Fox Farm. Hall, yeah. And the family would make frequent vacation trips there. They agreed that when they bought this place that they weren't going to have as much, um, you know, income for vacations and things like that. So they're like, oh, we'll buy this massive house, which is like in a way a vacation in itself. Right. And then we, for our trips that we do want to make, we'll just go to Herb's mother's condo on the lakefront. Um, and so they were making frequent trips. However, over time, Herb stopped going with the family. The family would do Weekend trips and a lot of summer trips. Yeah, um, and Herb would stay behind, and you know his excuse was that he needed to maintain his his two uh, Save a Lot stores, but it was more he wanted alone time to troll the gay bars and find victims, is what it ultimately was about. Right. Yep. Uh, so while the family was away, over the course of these years, um, through the, the mid to late '80s to the early '90s, Herb would hang out at gay bars and lure young men back to his house where many of them would never make it out. They would die at his hands. Mm. Um, and so let's get into the investigations of police discovering, you know, that these these young gay men were, were popping up missing all over the place. Right. When the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard approached Virgil Vandegrift, who was a former sheriff that was then working as a private investigator. So in this case, we've seen him before. We have kind of a heroic private investigator who does what the police should be doing. Right. Right. <laughs> um, We've seen this before, and Virgil is the prime example of one of those guys. He's dedicated to discovering, you know, who is killing these young uh, gay men. Yeah, Virgil's not the guy Um, that's going to let it go. He's not going to let this go. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, 28-year-old Alan Broussard approaches Virgil in early June of 1994 to tell him that her son was uh, missing, and Vandergriff wasn't overly concerned initially. Most cases, you know, he thought usually turned out to be runaways, right? Um, with no foul play involved, he nonetheless began to investigate the case. Alan Broussard, he learned, had uh, his share of troubles. Um, so yeah, Alan's mother—I I think I kind of screwed that up—but Alan's mother is the one that approached Virgil. Alan, her son, was missing, right? Um, and he, he would find out that Alan was a heavy drinker. He was uh, involved in the gay community. Um, Uh, and he was last seen, in fact, leaving a gay bar called Brothers. Uh, Virgil issued posters throughout the Indianapolis area and elsewhere that ran Allen's photo and asked for information from any citizen who might have seen him. Um, And if uh, if Vandergriff first perceived no ill intent behind Allen's disappearance, his perception of what most likely did happen uh, to the man changed quickly. Before the end of July, he became convinced that, as he puts it, Indianapolis had a serial killer on its hands because he noticed three similar incidents had occurred and more would surely be around the corner if this perpetrator wasn't caught. So he, he, he basically noticed that uh, Alan was was not the only one that was missing. And right. Alan was not coming, you know, he hadn't popped up. Like, he'd maybe initially assumed that it was just a mix-up. Alan was not to be heard from or seen. And there were several other young men just like Alan that uh, were, were gone. Yeah, way too close in description,
1: frequented the mm-hmm. same bars, the same places. Uh, yep. Yeah.
0: Too close. So Vir- Virgil learned that uh, at, at an Indianapolis police detective named Mary Wilson was working on the disappearance of uh, other gay men throughout the area, all similar to the Broussard mystery, even their physical appearances and ages paralleled. He also came to a small article in a magazine called Indiana Word about a man named Jeff Jones who had disappeared in mid-1993, a year earlier. Um, and this uh, was a gay lifestyle publication, which Vandegrift's investigation picked up while scouting the gay bars for, for information on Broussard. Um, and it reported that Jones, who was 31, had evaporated into thin air from the streets of Indianapolis. Uh, mm. So multiple men, all uh, you know, in the same circle, uh, living a similar lifestyle, um, are, are going up missing. And the latest would take place in July. This time, Roger Allen Goodlett who was 34 years old, left his mother's house where he lived to visit a gay bar on 16th, 16th Street. As with the other men, roughly the same age and with the same casual approach to life and like others, Roger was nowhere to be seen. Um, so as as with Miss Broussard, um, Goodlit's mother came to Vandergriff because she didn't want to wait for the police's obligatory legal period, which at this time was 30 days yeah. for a missing person before they would fully ramp up their investigation. Vandergriff must have been a pretty well-known private eye in the area, huh?
1: Yeah, must- <laughs> he had connections to law enforcement locally, and yeah, um, yeah he had a good reputation. Apparently, that these that, for the fact that these mothers went and sought him out, you know, on their mm-hmm. own and were able to actually get in touch with him.
0: It's pretty impressive. Yep, yep. Well, he was he was he was making his face be known everywhere. He was going okay. to all these gay bars and talking to everyone he could talk to. So I'm sure the mothers got wind of from you know some of the maybe the, her son's friends that okay. this, this guy was investigating. Okay, maybe, maybe I'm picturing him wrong. I'm picturing him as this like old retired police
1: detective that doesn't really want to be bothered, but he's just still needed in society. So these mothers <laughs> just keep knocking on his door, and he's like, all right, I'll help you this one In a way, time.
0: yes, but I think it, I, it, the only thing I would say is inaccurate is that he didn't want to be bothered. I think he was very I, okay, um, okay. concerned and, and interested uh, in solving that this. That makes way more sense. Maybe even advertising his private investigator services. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Okay. So uh, as... Uh, as Goodlet's mother, uh, Roger Allen Goodlet, uh, came to Virgil, um, not wanting to wait for that obligatory 30 days. She wept and told Virgil about Roger, his childhood demeanor, his trusting nature, his tendency to drink too much, uh, the whole litany of factors that made vo- Roger vulnerable out there on the streets. Yeah. Uh, the quote, the fates the fates of these young men were too close to ignore, said Virgil. Uh, so Virgil and his investigator, Bill H- uh, Hisley, scoured the gay bars in town and learned that uh, Goodlett had left our place, a a local gay bar, with another man whose description remained vague uh, in a light blue car with an Ohio license plate. Now, we mentioned that uh, Herb would drive different vehicles. Who knows where he got some... Maybe he had access to to vehicles because of his job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, or who knows, but maybe he was stealing them. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it seemed as though he drove different vehicles oftentimes. Yeah, it did. He also had some classic cars in his garage as well that were noted by the surviving victim later. Oh, really? So you know, maybe he was switching up vehicles that he actually owned and driving those just for these nights. He, he had like cl- well, a couple of classic cars in his garage, right? And he did have a five car garage, so that's not that absurd mm-hmm. to think that he had other vehicles.
1: Mm-hmm. And if he and you can yep. get tags from anywhere. I mean, you know, people will be mentioning, uh, you know, Ohio
0: tags or Indiana tags or whatever. Very I mean, true. Yeah, uh, I mean, he was. Very smart about disguising his, his uh, identity. He would, he would give, um, you know, fake names to uh, people that he would uh, talk to at the bars. Well, oh, of course. Of course. So, unfortunately, Vandegrift found the police disinterested in the information that he was supplying to them that he had acquired. Um, but the private detective was not discouraged. He knew that he was onto something important and had enough experience under his belt to comprehend the logic in the case like this. Then in August, only weeks after he entered the case, Virgil got a major break. A fellow named Tony Harris, which was not his actual real name. His name is um, disguised for his own protection. Right. Um, but this this fellow that we'll call Tony Harris came forward and, and said that he had known Roger Goodlett from the gay bar scene, and he had seen uh, uh, Virgil Vandegrift's posters and had some information to share. His story is pretty, biz- pretty crazy. Oh, yeah, it we is. We get firsthand knowledge of what it was like to spend a night with uh, Herbert Baumeister. Right. He claimed that he had spent an evening with a man that, whom he was sure was a serial killer, and when he tried to tell the local police, they treated him like he was crazy. We talked so many times about you know the police, in the eighties, nineties, yeah, seventies, 60s, You know, here we are, gay again. men to come forward, yeah. victims. Yeah, I mean, the cops are just uncomfortable know
1: investigating it, and they were at yeah. the time. They were just uncomfortable investigating it. There's really no other way around
0: mm-hmm. it. So he had tried to tell the police. They treated him like he was crazy. The FBI suggested that he had been on a drug trip. Oh, Lord. Um, Then phoning Roger's mother, she put him in touch with Detective Vandegrift. So here he was to tell his story to Virgil Vandegrift. Yeah. And over the next several weeks, he made several visits to Vandegrift's office, each one yielding more information about that night as he remembered it. His interviews were recorded with his permission, and according to Tony, he had chanced upon his suspect in a local gay bar in town, the 501 Club, and had actually seen him at other gay bars before in the past. He said that the man was tall, lanky, and silent, but they had never spoken until this particular August evening. Um, And what had drawn Tony's attention to him was the man was seemingly staring and scrutinizing the Roger Goodell missing persons poster behind the bar um, at the gay bar that they were at. Yeah, this man was um, a bit infatuated by the poster, Uh and it made he Tony said quote I had just had a Feeling by the way he was captivated by that poster that he was the man who had killed my friend Roger. Something in his now, eyes. Now that's a bit of a jump. Well also a bit of a people jump. that met uh, Herb said that they he he gave them a weird feeling that he was something off about him. I mean, clearly right. there was. But people have a good, you know, a lot of people have a good spidey sense for this type of thing and like Absolutely apparently, yeah, but it's just apparently Tony was one of those people that was intuitive and could just sense that something was not right with this guy. Right, right. And he's in his hunting grounds, so Herb is going to be acting yep. strange in these areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Tony, suspecting the stranger of Roger's disappearance, introduced himself to the man in hopes to find out what he might know. The man called himself at this time, who we, we know this was uh, Herb, but he called himself Brian Smart. Um, and evaded Tony's subtle inquiries about Roger, but nonetheless invited Tony out for the night. Mm. Um, He explained that he was a landscaper from Ohio, currently living in an empty house outside of town that was preparing for the new owners yet to move in. So he's claiming that he has access to this this large property, um, and he's able to stay there. And if he wanted to come over, uh, he invited Tony over for a cocktail and a swim. Tony reluctantly agreed, still... uh, curiosity, getting the better of him, wanting to know the truth about what happened to his friend Right. and hoping that this is going to get answers. So outside, they got into Brian's gray Buick with an Ohio license plate. So once again, different vehicle. There you go. An Ohio license plate. They headed north on Meridian Street where it turned into the U.S. 131, uh, I-31, leaving downtown behind them as greener suburbs emerged. Tony said they headed into, quote, rich people territory. Um, and he remembered... that there be, there was a sign that said something farm. That's all he could make out on this. He couldn't remember, you know, the Fox hollow farm part, Mm -hmm. but he remembered a sign with the word farm on it, uh, which would later come in handy uh, in helping to capture him. So the Buick, when they arrived, paused before what was a large Tudor country mansion. He said they entered a dark house. Uh, the, the house was very dark. There was clearly no one there. They entered through a side entrance. And this is where he mentioned seeing several cars in the garage, like classic cars. Um, He followed the man who called himself Brian through a succession of rooms until they came to a descending stairwell. Come on, Brian motioned down. There's electricity in the basement. He led him into a large recreation room at the bottom of the steps with an indoor pool, and this room uh, with its wet bar and connecting indoor pool might have been pleasant were it not for the array of clutter, which I kind of mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. There was also, bizarrely, mannequins um, set up all over the room. They were basically basically like there was a party of mannequins. this may be one of the weirdest things about her. <laughs> it's such what a weird image, fuck? isn't it? It's, it's, it's horror movie scene-esque, you know? like you You're know going what? back with this monster, and then he's got this party of mannequins that he got from his department stores. I was about, to, came say, from I was about to say,
1: his department stores probably gave him a lot of resources for these mannequins, yeah. and when they broke or whatever, he just brought them home. Or maybe some he liked. Yeah. I mean, he was obsessed yeah. with necrophilia, so human figures that don't move probably yeah. excited him a little bit.
0: I don't know. Yeah. So the sight of the mannequins around the room, staged in various poses, shot a chill through Tony. And uh, you know, the man called himself Brian. Herb said, "Quote: I get lonely down here. They give me company." Mm -hmm. And so they moved past that, and Tony would begin to swim in the indoor pool. And the man talked to him about a number of subjects. Eventually, however, his expression changed. "Quote: I just learned that this really neat trick," he whispered, gathering up the uh, the a hose that laid on the edge of the pool. Quote, if you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really great. You get a great rush. Quote, you just want to pinch these two veins, he continued, indicating the, car- uh, the carotid arteries around, uh, in his own neck, and it's such a great buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. Their lips change color. That's how you know you can tell it's really working.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: Quite a segue into that. I don't know how yeah. you go from normal conversation into that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think he he cared.
1: I think he was tired of waiting at this point, as we see with a lot of Mm -hmm. these guys. They don't waste much time. Once they
0: get you by yourself, it's business. A little bit of John Wayne Gacy to this one. Like, oh, I I could show you this really neat trick. Remember the handcuff trick? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or the rope trick, and before you know it, Mm -hmm. it's around your neck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So listening to the man carry on about his uh, asphyxiation fetish convinced Tony that Brian had murdered Roger. I mean, he knew the guy as Brian, but obviously this is a. Herb under mm-hmm. an alias. Um, and he thought, who knows how many more he's done this to. Quote, do it to me, Brian said. He stripped down and lay on the fold-out couch in the corner of the room and directed Tony to slip the hose over his throat. As he did so, he masturbated. It was clear that Brian had been through this routine many times. Tony pushed, uh, placed Brian's hands around his neck and lay down. Bending over Tony, Brian towed the, tied the choker around his throat, and the, as the blood pressure mounted in his head, Tony didn't wait for further results. He feigned unconsciousness. And when Tony opened his eyes and grinned, Brian raged. Quote, you scared the shit out of me. You know you can die doing this. There has been there have been accidents. With Uh-oh. that, Tony decided to be frank. Is that what happened to Roger Goodlett? Was he one of your accidents? Uh-oh. Were there others? So he's he's just at the point where he's like, fuck this. I'm, I'm confronting him about this. I know he's the one who killed my friend. This
1: encounter gets so odd from here, though.
0: <laughs> yeah. And at this point, uh, Herb, who was going under Brian at the time, stared at him, not comprehending, lost in a daze of whatever... You know he'd whatever he'd also was messed up. He had um, Tony mentioned that at one point Herb had gone to another room and he thought did drugs, and Tony had been denying his drinks from him. He was sober, mm-hmm. so he's he had a sober recollection of this night. He may have had a drink or two at the bar before they came here, right? But he had not taken anything, just knowing that it could be laced with something or whatever. Right. Very smart move on his part. Mm-hmm. But he knew that her, that that this guy calling himself Brian was. Definitely messed up on some stuff. And now he just choked himself basically into unconsciousness briefly. So he was really out of it. Yeah. Um, eventually Brian's speech slurred and he was overcome with sleep. This gave Tony a chance to uh, look around the home. Um, and at one point he found uh he he returned to the pool area where he found um he found Brian's pants laying on the ground and tried to dig through his pants to get to his wallet and see who was you know, he was convinced that he was using a fake name. Mm-hmm. Um, however before he was able to see his ID, her began making noise and uh, he, he got scared and dropped the pants. Unfortunately that could have that could have broken the case right there. Had he gotten you know his ID and seen his real identity, he could have brought that directly to the police or to um, Virgil and and solve this case. yeah but unfortunately they would have to wait to find out the true identity of her Baumeister. Some days can be a real struggle. The good news is I'm having a lot less of those since I found true niagen. I actually love
1: it. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. With 13 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, True Niagen is a supplement that's clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. Since taking True niogen, I have more resiliency, and it helps my muscles recover. I just have more zest for life. Add more vitality to your life today with TrueNiagen. Right now, new customers can save 10% on their first purchase by going to TrueNiagen.com slash creeper and use code creeper. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash creeper, code creeper, to save 10% on your first purchase. TrueNiagen.com slash creeper. Code, you guessed it, creeper.
0: What's up, creepers? Well, winter's upon us, and that means that many more days spent curled up on the couch getting out of the cold and enjoying our favorite shows. Luckily for you, our newest sponsor, Sundance Now, can help you with that. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who appreciate riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. If meaningful shows are your escape, then Sundance Now is definitely for you. Sundance Now offers the best true crime series, drama, and thrillers from all over the world. Their original series Dead Places, One Lane Bridge, and The Trail in the Outback, the Lindy Chamberlain story, are sure to excite and entertain. So far, my favorite featured series on Sundance Now has been Too Close. Too Close is a three-part miniseries about a dedicated forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Emma Robinson. She gets far too close to a, a patient who's committed a horrible crime. I love this series for the same reason we all love true crime. We wanna know what made someone do the horrible thing that they did, and that's what Dr. Emma Robinson is trying to figure out, and she's getting far too close to this person in the meantime. It's riveting, I highly recommend it. Um, and there's plenty more where that came from. I'm actually midway through uh, something that spotted my eye on Sundance Now, Jonestown, The Terror in the Jungle, a four part series. You know I had to click on that and it's phenomenal. I I wish that we had this series um, available back when we did our Jonestown episode on Patreon. You can stream Sundance Now on all of your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. Start streaming your next obsession. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code CREEPER. That's SundanceNow.com, code CREEPER, for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com, code CREEPER. Um, So it took some convincing, but uh, Tony finally uh, convinced Brian to drive him back to town, uh, dressing, searching for his car keys. He then led Tony back to the Buick and drove him back to Indianapolis. He remembered... uh, this man saying, "Quote, hey, you're a good sport. You really know how to play." As the car rolled into town, he made Tony promise to meet him at the 501 Club the following Wednesday, uh, where he they never did uh, mm. meet again. Following that, but uh, until later when they when yeah. they do finally. But uh, it it appeared as though this this kind of spooked this man away from Tony for a while because of his you know incessant questioning about his friend that had been and killed, and he knows and, that he blacked out for a little while
1: while Tony was at his house. He's not, mm-hmm. he's not stupid. He realizes that. He's like, yeah. there's no
0: telling what this guy found out about me while I was asleep. Yeah. So. so Tony told Virgil that he wasn't very clear where Brian's house was actually located, but it seemed to be in either Westfield or Carmel. Both, of, both are exclusive suburbs in the Hamilton County. And by the directions given, Vandegrift knew the place was outside of Marion County in which Indianapolis sits. Uh, the trouble was that the vague description of the house, as stated by Tony, could o- could fit almost any one of hundreds of estates in that area, um, and all he had to go on was a sign that was posted near the driveway that read, something farms, mm. um, yeah. which it's not out of the realm to even think that maybe a few of these hundreds of houses out in this area might have a sign that says something farms on it, you know, they're say, large, large yeah. properties. Not to say, that probably didn't help at all. <laughs> yeah. It ultimately helps a little bit, yeah. to tie some things together. Oh but, no doubt. Um, I'm I'm surprised something. he didn't uh, take
1: a better look at that sign on the way out, or maybe it was dark, you know, when, uh,
0: yeah, when Herb took him back. When into all town. of this was happening so fast, yeah. as well. <clears throat> um. So Vandegrift drew anxious at the as the appointed Wednesday neared for Tony and Brian's rendezvous. He posted one of his men, Steve Rivers, outside of the bar while Tony loitered inside because Tony had spotted several cars uh, in the in the um, in the man's garage, as we mentioned. Yeah. So it could have been any one of those cars that would come. Um, they studied the faces of any automobile that uh, seemed to cruise by, but no one fit Brian's description: brown-haired, long-faced, pale. And by the time the bar closed that evening, it became apparent, much to Vandergrift's disappointment, that Tony Harris had been stood up. So the man was kind of nervous. Didn't show back up the following Wednesday. Right. Um, realizing that he had uncovered a much larger case than a missing person, Vandegrift notified the Indianapolis police department yet again. Virgil took Tony Harris and his information to the one person in the department that they believed might actually see the value in his story, mm-hmm. which was detective Mary Wilson, who Vandegrift knew was already working on a number of other missing persons case. We mentioned her briefly earlier. And in fact, she had been the principal investigator in the Jeff Jones disappearance the case that Vandegrift had read about in the Indiana Word and whose details match so closely with those of the missing persons uh, reports for Roger Goodlett and Alan Broussard. Mary, as it turned out, was investigated disappearances of other Indianapolis men, too. Those of 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, 21-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Livingstone, and others dating back to the early 1990s. They were all gay men. hmm Mary realized that Tony recognized Tony Harris as perhaps the missing piece to solving the puzzle. So this is what Virgil was hoping for. They found someone within the police department that actually believes believes them, right? Um, and believes more importantly, Tony Harris's story. And you have a firsthand so, experience, which so yes. often solves these crimes and
1: gets seriously. These, yeah. A lot of
0: serial killers we've covered get taken down by someone who survived. That right? One. Yep. That one or two victims that survived and what they're able to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it changes everything. Yep. So he repeated his story to Mary. Uh, he then accompanied her, accompanied her on a prowl through the northern suburbs to try and find the, uh, the home that he had that nightmarish night in. Mm-hmm. Pulling into the gate, uh, into one gateway after another, none of them, uh, the private manor, struck a fam- familiar chord with him. And in the meantime, Mary designated plainclothes men to, uh, in the field to the gay bars in town, the 501 Club, the Varsity, and our place where they talked to bar owners and their frequenters for information that might identify the monster. Um, meanwhile, Vandegrift dispatched one of his investigators, Bill Hisley, to search the country suburbs. Uh, Bill had been a beat cop, I believe, and knew these suburbs well, so he he assigned him to that task. Okay. And his quest would ultimately bring him to a property sign at the end of a long driveway in Westfield marked Fox Hollow Farms. And uh, Bill Hisley was aware of Tony's statement about seeing a sign outside of Brian's house that read fa- farms uh, or something along those lines. Right. And thought he would investigate. So... This estate that he'd come up upon greatly resembled, resembled Tony's description as well, large, run-down, and morbid. Mm. Um, we mentioned how it was unkempt, you know, as uh, as the Baumeisters lived there. It just got worse and worse. Right. Um, so it kind of stuck out uh, in, a, in a neighborhood that had everything so well-kempt. Um, it belonged, he found out, to a family named the Baumeisters, and Vandegrift ordered aerial shots made of the property, and when he showed the photos to Tony, um, Tony unfortunately... Uh, looked at him for a moment before saying quote I, no i don't think so the driveway is too short from what i remember to remember it to be mm. so unfortunately that uh you know they didn't move forward further right away i was thought man this is and, just such an odd thing to say and
1: to rule out this property but you got to think when when you are tense and you're nervous and you're riding to this property with this man for the first time by yourself it probably did seem like a forever drive to get there
0: yeah, and it was dark. It was and dark. And an aerial shot from actually being there is totally different. Yeah, you know exactly the exactly. dimensions and the the perspective is totally different. Oh, absolutely. So Herb continued to live his facade. His marriage to Julie continued on its surface to be normal. However, things were cr- they were they were falling apart at the seams over time. Their their marriage was sexless and passionless. And by the end of 1994, the Save-A-Lots had taken a plunge as well. Shoppers declined, bills soared. And it seems as though, you know, that came directly back to Herb, who just was not managing them was properly. Just, yeah, he, he just had wasn't other maintaining shit, you know, the store. He was too busy doing other things. Well, if your house is and your property is falling apart, I'm sure your store is as well. Oh, they were. Yeah. Um, we have a, a quote about that in a minute from one of the employees of Save-A-Lot at the time. Yeah. Huh. Um, but Julie, his wife, tired of the bickering, threatened divorce. Um, she did not act initially, however. Uh, she, instead, she sat by and watched her business decline, her marriage sour, and her, new hus- or, and her husband grow stranger. At the workplace, Herb's ever-darkening moods were venting on his employees. He demanded grueling work and unfair attention from them. He fired those who wouldn't comply to his unjust treatment. Um, yet his own work, workday behavior was a farce, he would say, um, his employees say that he would disappear for hours then return reeking of alcohol and barking orders and uh, orders at them with his whiskey breath. <laughs> uh, here's a quote from one of the employees at the time. The once tidy stores uh, had become filthy. She, uh, they said, everything was so dirty. Everywhere you looked, there were mountains of garbage bags. It was like working in a garbage heap.
1: Ugh. So I wonder
0: why they, you know, they started to, those, those stores weren't performing very well right you're it, walking through the store and there's just garbage everywhere and when you run a thrift
1: store you're already you're, you're already kind of on that verge like everything is different yeah. and unorganized you know it doesn't look neat because you don't have multiples of certain things on a shelf or whatever so mm-hmm. when it starts to get dirty even a little bit yeah it's very discouraging to to shop there and to look around no wonder the the uh the money started
0: to decline from these stores yeah So it had been almost a year since uh, Virgil Vandegrift and Mary Wilson had begun their search for the man named Brian Smart. Um, His real identity and house of mannequins remained a mystery. (laughs) The hard lead that Vandegrift and Wilson wanted finally did come to fruition, though. Assuming the situation had cooled enough for his reappearance in the gay bar scene, Herb Baumeister decided to stop in at the Varsity Lounge on the evening of August 29th, 1995. And as it were, Tony Harris was present at the bar. who had given up hope for ever seeing Brian Smart again. He refrained from jumping out of his shoes with excitement when he saw him. He chatted with Baumeister nonchalantly and then, at the evening's end, managed to record his license plate number of the pickup truck in which Baumeister uh, was driving that night. The plate number 75237A belonged not to anyone named Brian Smart, but to a Herbert Baumeister of Westfield, Indiana. He happened to be driving his own vehicle. (laughs) Yep, probably one of the ones from his garage. Yep. A classic pickup or something. Yep. Um, they learned that he lived in an estate called Fox Hollow Farms and had a wife and children. Mm. They knew right then. You know That's they it. knew. The second they looked up his address, they're like, oh, holy shit, we got him. And then the, the the one officer was like, I fucking knew it. Yeah, <laughs> I know, know? right. <laughs> was they Bill that had already been to the yeah. house? And like,
1: I told you guys months ago.
0: Yep, yeah, it probably costed some lives because you guys didn't believe me. Mm. True. So um, the house, they learned... Uh, Boasted a swimming pool in the basement as well, and that must have just clicked as well. Like, yeah, there's an ha- indoor pool. Yeah, there's a lot the of big
1: properties out there, but how many of them have a swimming pool in the basement? And then the basement right. full of
0: mannequins, <laughs> which mm-hmm. which they later find out too, and then that's just like a nail in the coffin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now the police were closing in on Herb, and he was unraveling at this time. Mary and her boss, uh, Lieutenant Gre- Thomas Green, approached Baumeister at Washington Street uh, at his store one of his save a lot stores on november 1st after surveying his actions for a bit without pretense mary told him straight up why they were there they were investigating the disappearance of several young men in the indianapolis community and that he was a suspect and they wanted to search his home he refused telling them that further communication must be channeled through his lawyer um in the car afterwards green told mary that he thought herb was uh not was not only nervous beyond belief but one of the weirdest guys i ever saw (laughs) that kind of Goes back to what I mentioned earlier about you know just being around the guy you got weird vibes yeah. <laughs> um, so not to be done by outdone by Herb's refusal, Mary for, decided to t- try a different angle. Mm-hmm. She approached his wife, Julie Baumeister, who, as co-owner of Fox Hollow, could legally authorize a ground search of the uh, of the property. The detective found Julie just as stubborn, however, as Herb had been. Um, evidently Herb had told Julie that she would, uh, that he was being falsely accused of theft. And if approached do not under any circumstances, allow the police to conduct a search. But when Mary confided in with, uh, confided with Julie, the real reason for her quest, uh, request, she was stunned. Quote, when she recovered enough to speak again, she informed Mary that they could not search her home. She was polite, but still stunned, almost beyond words. Mary gave Julie her card and urged her to call if she changed her mind. So it goes from theft to no. There's a bunch of young missing men who right. we believe might their remains might be at your property. Mm. That's quite a shock. Yeah, it is. Hear. Yeah, it is. But you have to think, um, as Julie, in this sense, you have to be like that.
1: Some, does add up.
0: Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> the, some of these red flags over the years of being yeah. with this man. That you know we've only had sex a handful of times over 20 plus years. Yeah, and he's had plenty of his time. odd behavior. Yeah. And he's had plenty of time to do this. He's been at the at the property, at home by himself. She's often. had to have seen the mannequins displayed yeah. all over the pool area. Yeah. she has to wonder what he's doing when they're when the family's away for you know weekends all the time, and he's at home. Exactly. Exactly. All this stuff is starting to click in her head. Or maybe the uh, you know maybe it comes back around the, the 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 human skull that her son had had on a stick and brought to the house from the woods surrounding the the property. Uh, oh, two years prior. Maybe she, that came back around in her mind. Oh, yeah. She's going through all that. <laughs> She's having yeah, all those flashbacks had, at this point. That had actually happened. Yeah. her Their son had been playing in the woods with a friend, and they brought back a human skull on a stick, and were actually using, using the stick to put the skull up in their sister's room uh, in the window to scare her. Yeah, And when the mother found out, she made uh, the son like take her out to the woods where the, the she found the remains of a human out there, the the, the skeleton of it, and yeah. somehow didn't go to the police. Well, er, Herb said that it was just a, a research, the remnants of a research skeleton yeah. or
1: something like that. He said he, he it was some yeah. bullshit excuse. It's like why would that be out yep. here, Herb? You're not even
0: we're not even. It was in a the dissecting
1: city. skeleton, right? Yeah. Why are you? Wh- who's dissecting skeletons out in our
0: property, a private <laughs> human property? skeletons? Yeah, yeah. That doesn't yep. make any sense at all. Yeah, but so that have to had to have uh, that had to have kind of you know gone through her mind when uh, the detective asked her about this. Right. You also have to you have to understand
1: she probably feels a sense of embarrassment living uh, living with this man who is mm-hmm. who's been living like this and she had no idea for this long or she was in denial. Imagine how that must look to her, because on yep. the outside she seems like a very successful, together member of society and on the and on the inside her whole her whole family is falling
0: apart right under her nose yeah you know it's, it's kind of embarrassing and it's got it's got to hurt knowing that she's she's wasted 25 years of her life with this person absolutely you know absolutely So after this, things soured more and more at the Baumeister residence. Julie uh, even phoned Mary Wilson one morning to blame her for causing her domestic life to worsen. Quote, the police are not coming to my house, she screamed, tearing through my things, upsetting my children, all on the word of a psycho named Tony Harris, whom my husband has never heard of. Mm. So denial. I think she's in Mm -hmm. denial at this point. Exactly. Uh, And lashing out in anger over it. It wouldn't be until June of 1996, six months, as Vandergrift states, that Julie came to her senses. Over that time, her husband had become a paranoid wreck. When the Chir- Children's Bureau decided to cancel its contract with the two failing Save-a-Lot stores in May, he seemed to go off the deep end. Home life worsened for the woman, um, and it was now intolerable. Both she and Herb um, had an- had initiated separate divorce proceedings, and in her and her mind continued through it all to replay the doubts about Herb's sanity that Mary had for, uh, force-fed her uh, in, into her consciousness. Right. How could you um, not suddenly be going through that stuff? Right. <clears throat> suddenly, she realized that she felt no loyalty to the thing that had been her husband, and on June 23rd, she called her lawyer, Bill Wendling, and told him to get in touch with Mary Wilson. Herb was currently out of town with his uh, with their son, uh, Eric, visiting his mother at Lake Wasi, and uh, she wanted to take this opportunity to tell Mary about the bones she had found in her backyard. And this is... Goes back to that story I just mentioned a minute ago. Yeah. Um, the following day, after Julie's lawyer was notified, Mary Wilson drove anxiously to Fox Hollow Farms. Accompanying her were two Hamilton County officials: Captain Tom Anderson of the sheriff's uh, county sheriff's office and Detective Jeff Markham. So Julie Baumeister, with attorney Wendling at her side, met the law enforcement people at her front door that afternoon and led them through the house to the wooded backyard. There, she pointed to the spot to where two years earlier her son Eric had found a skeleton. The reason she had not notified authorities until now, she claimed, was because she had believed that Herb, she had believed Herb's story about the bones being no more than a dissecting skeleton. His his recent erratic actions, however, filled her with new doubts. You think? Yeah. <laughs> Y'all think? Yeah.
1: Yeah. She's definitely being terrified now. She's she's probably thinking what else has been back there? Because they could have found other yeah. skeletons and other remnants. Surely that the, you the think-
0: children have. Do you think over, you know, these prior weeks, she had maybe gone out there herself and looked around a little bit more and found some more, quote unquote, dissecting skeletons? Definitely. And thought to herself, how many do you need, Herb? How many dissecting skeletons do you need in the woods? Right. I mean. I know you're weird and you like mannequins, but uh, starting to question your theory
1: here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't implied that he was the one
0: dissecting the skeletons, was it? Maybe he was saying that yeah somebody else had done that yeah. and left it out there that it wasn't a real a real human skeleton or something or it was it was but it was used for scientific purposes or something. who knows it's so you know what's but I feel like she's had her she's had her head in the sand for a long time you know oh definitely <laughs> definitely she's just been staying busy
1: she has plenty to keep yeah. her busy I'm sure it's one of those instances yeah. but you know what's funny as much as we've referenced bodies and skeletons and mannequins in this episode they haven't been confused for each other for like the first time ever in true crime usually when you're talking right. bodies and mannequins it's usually because they're getting confused one for the other or vice versa you know mm-hmm. so it's kind of funny that this story has both mannequins and bodies and remains but at, neither at of them, the same property at the same property Neither of them confused with the other no 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 it's very clear
0: what's mannequins and what's bodies but it's just weird right. isn't it yeah yeah it's just
1: a strange occurrence
0: so as the detectives looked around the yard, it, it appeared at first glance to be normal, but as they began to kick through the low grass and patches of dirt just beyond the back patio, they encountered a bone a bone about a foot long, charred from being burned. Um, they weren't sure if it was human. Then, as their eyes focused on the area immediately around them, it became apparent that those many pebbles and rocks shown around the cover were not pebbles and rocks, but fragments of bone. Mm. Lawyer Bill Wendling searched, uh, watched the police scoop up one chipped bone after another now looked around at his feet, like evidence that followed the ol- the old adage, so obvious it's unclear. He realized the chill that he was too standing on what resembled bone chips. So that that's insane. Like they they finally like their eyes focus and they zoom out and they're like, these are all not these are not pebbles. These are all fragments of bone. Like yeah, that realization. Yeah, it's it, I'm sure it stuck out like a sore thumb once they realized what they were on.
1: Yeah, because out in the woods, there's nothing that's going to be as white as bone. But but then again, right. this bone was charred. A lot of it was charred, so it could have had mm-hmm. burnt, brown, black edges.
0: So it could have blended charred in a and had bit more. been there for a while. Probably had some grass growing over it in some instances. Right, right. The unkempt nature of the yard helped to disguise it as well. I'm sure. Oh yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so at one point, he leaned over to pick up. It was obviously a piece of human teeth. Pieces of bone were everywhere. Ugh. Still, the county people on site were unconvinced that what they were gathering and taking photos were actually human. It must have been also denial. Like it, there's it's no absolutely way this is all denial. Human bone.
1: It's it's just because yeah. the sheer amount. They were shocked. The horrors. You know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, it's just like that right. can't be a body too. Uh, that can't right. be more bone over there. Come on. Like this, there's got to right. be a, a a simple explanation for this. Maybe this is like an old burial ground from a long time ago, and this stuff has surfaced. I don't know. Your mind just doesn't go to the seemingly docile
0: businessman who lives on this property has been killing people and throwing their remains back here. See, the thing is, the two detectives that Mary brought with her, they had that mindset. She knew. She damn well knew they were human. And when she delivered the bags of evidence to forensic anthropologist uh, Stephen Nor- Nor- Noraki yeah, at the University of Indiana for an examination, his answer was fast coming, quote, they're human, they're recent, and they've been burned. Well, there you go. So there's your confirmation. There you go. And, no arguing with that. and the full-scale search of the property was on. The next day, the police returned to the scene of what looked like one of the worst crimes Indiana had ever inc- encountered. It began to appear now that Herb Baumeister's homemade graveyard might contain the remains of those many young homosexuals who over the years had vanished from the streets of Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. The anthropological team began the hunt by placing small orange flags on the ground wherever a bone fragment appeared. And in only a half an hour, they dropped nearly 100 such markers. Summing it up, Naraki explained, quote, it's a mass disaster scene. Uh, while the dig continued into the late hours, other policemen checked the in, out the interior of the Baumeister home, finding the mannequins, the wet bar, the pool, just as Tony Harris had described it. However, they uncovered something that Tony had not seen in the evening of his encounter with Baumeister a semi hidden video camera that police immediately suspected had been used to videotape the strangulations of these young men. Yeah, that definitely uh, happened. For sure. For yeah. sure. But they never found the tapes they never found the tapes almost almost, almost unfortunately found the tapes. Yeah, yeah we'll get to we'll that we'll talk about that in a few minutes um, so julie grew anxious about the safety of her son eric who was was with uh, his father at lake wawasi 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 Wawasie. we'll go with that wawasi yeah people in indiana are like you fucking idiot you you butchered it <laughs> Um, she feared the limits to which Herb might go out in to find out uh, what was happening. So, if he found out that this search was taking place at his home, what he might do with their son and to himself. Yeah. Prosecut- Prosecutor Lear and a county judge drew drew up custody papers to remove the boy from his father's presence. Efforts were made by Baumeister to hold on to his son, but came uh, but came to no avail. He had no reason to suspect that his secret had been literally uncovered back at Ho- Fox Hollow Farms. Um, and he figured this custody action was just a ploy by Julie to counteract his latest divorce movements. So luckily, he was still unaware of the search taking place at his property or else who knows what he might have done with his son. It's kind of fucked up that um, he only wanted to fight for his son, right? Didn't he have three kids? Yeah.
1: That's kind of fucked up, and it's kind of weird, too, especially when you later find out that a lot of his victims were 20 years old, around 20 years old. You know, that's yep. that's pretty damn young. Mm-hmm. And then he wants to hold on to his son. In particular, that just doesn't rub me right. Mm-hmm.
0: That's I know, I agree. That's creepy. I hope I hope he never yeah, and, I hope
1: he never messed with that boy.
0: All right. me too. But it, it makes you wonder, knowing the monster that he was and the fact that he's on a trip with just his son to this lakefront property, you're like what was going on, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I don't think that was that was a good situation.
0: So when the police showed up with the proper papers to escort the child home, Herb released him calmly without menace. Uh, the police determined also that the timelines of the victim's disappearances coincided with the periods that herb's family were away so it's all yep. falling into place they know now what what has been going on for all these years yep while his family's away he's been taking these young men back to this mansion where he kills them and throws their you know remains out into the woods yep Meanwhile the excavations of the backyard went on without pause the number of diggers had grown to about 60 volunteers mostly off-duty policemen and firemen and in the first couple of days, Uh, The search had produced an amazing 5,500 bones, teeth, and bone fragments, which, according to Nalraki, made up about four bodies. That's insane. Yeah, it is. That you could have that many pieces of bones from four bodies. Um, And after they they had combed over the entire 18 acres of the Baumeister's property, members of the team were soon learned that the search was far from over. Neighbors from an adjacent farm crossed into the police garden to inform them that they had found evidence of more bones next door. They led investigators to an area cut through with drainage ditch that separated the two properties. Here in this ditch were so many human ribs, vertebrae, and spines that one of the officials murmured, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. Oh. The bones were so numerous and more intact uh, than on the Bonemeister land that they actually stuck up visibly from the mud. Shovels drew in not, only, uh, not more bones, but with them, cans of Menua- Miller Genuine Draft Beer, which was Herb's favorite beer, so just tying himself more to this. Yep and handcuffs that had probably bound the victims wow
1: he didn't really go to very great extents to hide these bodies did he
0: no only the ones that were really close to his home like you know 20 feet away from the home but the ones that were a little further out they're like oh they won't bother he must have thought oh they won't bother to go you know i wonder you know on the property line of me and my neighbor here i'll just throw the entire rib cages over here well, do no find those. Did we ever find out where he was burning these bodies? Was it just a fire pit on the property? Was that searched? Was it a was it a wood stove or what, what the hell? Do not know. Do not know. Yeah, it could have been, it could have been a fireplace in the house or it could have been barrels in the backyard, who knows. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's there's a bunch
1: more evidence somewhere wherever he's burning these bodies unless he's throwing them in the woods and lighting them on fire right there in the woods. Which I right. feel like that's just that's that's asking to get caught. I just don't feel yeah. like, you know, neighboring your neighbors that like the neighbor that shared the ditch on the other side, like if you're starting a fire in that ditch once a month or some shit, I just, I just don't think you, you get away with that. I think
0: they're gonna be like, why are you mm-hmm. starting
1: fires in the woods? It's about the dumbest thing you
0: can right. do. But yeah, I mean, you very easily could have been doing it in the fireplace, you know, yeah. little bits at a time and then crushing them up and throwing them out in the yard, which is also dumb, like. Yeah. Put him in a fucking trash can, take him to the dump, something, who knows? But Right. He, he never he thought was he lazy. was gonna get caught, man. That's that's obvious. No. As most of these guys. He was do. living very bold. Yeah. And honestly, who knows how long it would have taken if it weren't for Tony. Like, may have never been caught, to be honest. Yeah.
1: I'm so surprised he didn't kill Tony. Aren't you? Yeah. I really am. I mean, he had every opportunity. Maybe he really liked Tony.
0: But no, I think he I think he was smart enough to know that Tony would have fought him and probably would have won. Like, uh, Tony was, his demeanor, he probably he probably realized he never should have taken Tony back to his house because Tony was suspicious of him from the time that he approached him. The whole concept of approaching him I- was based around the way he was looking at that flyer. So right. Tony was not going to get taken advantage of. He was not going to let him put that rope around his neck, and, and Herb must have known that. He must have sensed that. But he did let him choke him, though no he ne- well he let he let uh tony choke him but he herb never let I mean Tony never let herb choke him yeah they didn't. he didn't yeah he choked herb
1: for a, I mean uh herb choked Tony for a little bit remember then Tony faked it and then herb got mad at him he faked fiending asleep oh my <sighs> gosh I forgot about that part yeah, yeah he yeah. like and he freaked him out when he came too yeah yeah I bet he did because he probably thought he was unconscious and herb was about to finish the fucking job. That's probably yeah. what happened and it really it genuinely scared him that's what upset him because oh shit he's like oh you're you're not unconscious well my plans ruined
0: and you're mm-hmm. not intoxicated so you know her, her- there might have been a drugging element to most of these where like the Randy Kraft thing, where he wasn't uh um powerful enough to strangle these men if they if they were going to fight back exactly. so he would drug them trick them into putting the rope around for sexual pleasure and then just continue to Exactly. Choked them beyond the point of coming back. Exactly. I think old Herb couldn't do it if they were sober, which Tony was mm-hmm. sober and he made sure of that. Saved yeah. his life. So by the time that the exclamation uh, ended, uh, there were, they had found about 140 bones that were estimated as belonging to another seven men on top of the um, the other four that they had, they had accumulated, bringing the count up to 11 mm-hmm. um, found on the property. And it would be september before the anthropologists were able to identify some of the bodies disappointingly only uh, eight of the eleven um and each of these gathered from dental records yeah so it was four initially that they were able to but over the years it's obviously been a long time there there's been four more that have been identified well, so
1: yeah i actually i found out that the seven that were identified later were because in a different area they found seven left thumb bones ain't that weird they found yeah, so, I mean seven left thumb. The human bones. body only has one left thumb bone, so exactly. that's seven people right there. Exactly, but it's just odd that they were able to find all of those those thumb bones, you know, un, untouched. You would think the hands and the head would be the number one things that a serial killer would try to destroy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that he left seven
0: thumb bones intact to be identified, but yeah. That's just some, but like we said, he later. wasn't planning on getting caught, so didn't really matter. <laughs> of course, of course, they're never planning on getting caught. Yeah. So the the eight that would ultimately be identified would be Roger Allen Goodlett, which we knew, thirty three years old. Yeah. Manuel Resendez, who was thirty one. Stephen Hale, who was twenty six. Richard Hamilton, who was twenty. Johnny Bayer, who was twenty. Alan Broussard, who was twenty eight. Jeff Jones, who was thirty one, and Michael Kieran, who was forty six. And that was eight of the eleven. Uh, sets of remains that were found but where was herb at this point the only clue police had came from brad baumeister herb's brother who had called detective wiseman on june 29th five days five days after the police found the graveyard behind the house brad told the policeman that his brother had phoned him from the little michigan town of fenville saying that he was on a business trip and needed more money quickly and after brad sent him some cash he became aware of the goings on at fox hollow farms and notified authorities immediately so Herb knows at this point that it, it, the jig's up, that his farm's been dug up, that all the bodies have been found, and he's on the run. Yep. Um, as best can be discern- de- determined, Herb, in his 1989 gray Buick, left uh, Wawasse, where the, his mother's condo was, and headed north, arriving at Fenville around the 28th of June. The next day, he reached Port Hur- Huron, uh, where he phoned again Brad, asking for more money, and Brad told him that he should call the police, that they wanted to speak with him. Herb's like nah, Uh, yeah, I'm good. At this point, he headed north. Yeah, he headed north and fled to Canada. Quote: uh, Ontario Provincial Police told the Indianapolis Star they believed Herb arrived uh, in Sarnia on June 30th, spending several days there before driving east along Lake Huron uh, shoreline to Grand Bend, Ontario. Um, There at Pinnery Park on the evening of July 3rd, Herb put a 357 Magnum revolver barrel to his forehead and pulled the trigger, Mm. ending his life before he could be captured. So there's no trial. There's no, you know, we don't get any more details. Yeah, Um, no justice. Note he left behind attributed... He did leave a three-page note behind, attributing his decision to a failing business and an irreparable marriage, but there was no mention of the, s- the many skeletons on his property. So he didn't want to talk about the whole serial killer part of his life. Oh, know, no. Just failed marriage and business. You know, that's the important thing. Yeah, I'm sure that's what me, drove me, him me. to it, even though it's been failing for years. Yeah. Um, in his final words on a three page suicide document he explained that he would now eat a peanut butter sandwich his favorite snack and then go to sleep wow the evening before he died a Canadian trooper had stopped him to ask why he was sleeping in his car under a nearby bridge he told her that he was merely a tourist passing through and he was grabbing a moment's moment's rest at the time she noted that there was some luggage and what looked to be a pile of videotapes in his back seat oh no quote were the yeah those those very well may have been the murder tapes they were Um, There's no doubt you ride around with a bunch of videotapes for no reason. Yeah. Uh, Virgil Vandegrift says, quote, Were these the videotapes of the murders he committed in the pool at Fox Hollow Farms? We will never know. For after he died, there were no signs of the tapes on on him nor in his car. He must have tossed them in a lake before he shot himself. And then adds, perhaps it's for the best.
1: Uh, Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, we know
0: what he did. uh, What good does it do to have the video evidence of it? I was about to say,
1: imagine being his children and watching those tapes. Yeah, or finding them in the
0: future. Those or, don't really need to be out there. Oof. I mean, they're not going to add any value. Like the, the, the victim's families. I was about to say, they're just going to hurt the victim's families and yeah. the
1: survivors of Herb. And yeah, that's just not a good idea.
0: Maybe it's best that there was no trial, that there was no tapes, because imagine if he had not killed himself and he went to trial and those tapes were found, they would have oh been showed God. to the jury and the family members may have seen those videos. And then all those people are scarred forever. Yep, scarred forever. Yeah. Yep. Um, so later on Herb would be connected to the, the, I-70 Strangler murders and it, it appears as though he's the strongest suspect in those. And honestly, in my opinion, he is responsible for most of them. Um, the I-70 Strangler killed 12 men in Indiana and Ohio between June, 1980 and October, 1991, dumping their bodies near the I- interstate 70. Uh, Larry Eiler is also a, a possible suspect. Yeah. We've, we've obviously covered him before. Right. Um, All of these victims were young boys and adolescents who met in popular gay bars and in similar establishments within a four block radius of Indianapolis. All of the victims were later found naked or partially clothed near the I-70, dumped in rivers, streams, and ditches in the rural countryside. Each had been strangled to death, which fits obviously uh, Herb's modus operandi. Mm -hmm. Early in the investigations, Vandegrift had made connections between the disappearances of gay men in Indianapolis and the I-70 strangler. um, In sharing... Tony Harris's testimony with David Lindoff a prosecutor from Pebble County Ohio who was heading to the investigation of what was called the I70 murders the two men agreed that there was there were tight similarities between the murders that were going on that Herb was responsible for and these I70 killings the last known I70 murder had been committed in 1990 not long before the Indianapolis disappearances began so this might have been you know not long after Herb gets Hollow Farms and begins to start dumping his bodies there that's that's what I thought as fits the well timeline.
1: it fits perfect yeah. Yep. It's just too it's too coincidental. The fact that bodies mm-hmm.
0: stopped showing up along I-70 right after Herb gets his property. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: damning. Uh, when the newspapers began splashing the news of bodies unearthed at Foxhall Farms, Lindoff remembered the conversations he had with Andegriff. Now having a suspect, Lindoff discovered that Herb Baumeister had made countless business trips to Ohio during the late 1980s. Already cold to the fact that her husband was indeed the maniac who strangled men in her home while she and her children were away, this new accusation did not surprise her. She cooperated with Lindoff, providing him with all the information he wanted, credit card receipts, phone call records, even the use of their car Herb had driven uh, on those business trips. uh, Baumeister's photo matched the police sketch drawn from witnesses who they they thought had seen uh, the I-70 strangler. One witness, in fact, even came forward to identify Herb's picture as the one—the same man who had driven his friend from a bar home in the evening of 1988, his friend, Michael Riley, who had been found dead the next morning and is one of the victims of the I-70 Strangler. Uh, not, long, not long after that, representatives from, uh, from combined Ohio and Indiana counties held a press conference to definitively link uh, Herb Baumeister with the I-70 slayings. Quote, there were skeptics, Van de Griff admits. We'll never know for sure, of course, if he was indeed the same man. Everything points to him, even the fact that the roadside killings ended at the same time he bought his house and now had a place to, with plenty of room to dump the bodies with less hassle. Yep. And if he was already a successful uh, serial killer dumping bodies off the side of the highway for years, like, of course, he was bold and thinking, I can just dump them in my backyard and get away with it. I've been doing it for years, getting, you know, people see me at these bars with these people, and then I throw them out the car yeah. on the side of the highway. And I, and I've gotten away with it. it was, it'll be even easier to throw them in my backyard. That's less bodies to be found for as long as I live here. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. It yep. makes it easier. So to wrap this case up, we'll quickly mention the names of the victims, the known victims of the I-70 killer. Michael Petrie, 15 years old. That goes back to that conversation we mentioned about him and his son. 15 yeah, years does. old. If he did indeed kill this 15-year-old boy, that just tells you he's he's – not uh, opposed to doing this with young boys as well, and there's many other teenagers on this list. Yeah, there's a 14 year old. So we got Maurice Taylor, 23 years old. Uh, Delvoid Lee Baker, 14. Michael Andrew Riley, 22. Eric Rotker, 17. Michael Glenn, 29. James Robbins, 21. Jean Paul Tabit, which has no age. Uh, Stephen Elliott, 26. Clay Boatman, 20, uh, 32. Uh, Thomas Clevenger, 19, and Otto Becker, 42. 42-year-old 42 in there as well. So maybe yeah. just opportunistic, like whoever was willing to go with him. Didn't really matter to him age-wise. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, he was confirmed to kill. One of his victims was
1: 46, I believe, in the confirmed— Yeah, that was found on Fox uh, Hall yes, Farm. Michael Kern. He was 46. So basically anywhere from 14 to 46 years old, if they were willing— he, yeah he would take he would take him yep mm. yeah I can't believe we we took this long to cover this guy man but there's it's it's frustrating though these these killers that commit suicide at the end they see no justice uh, they don't answer for anything that they did and've we've, we've talked about this plenty of times you know I guess it's nice yeah, that they I, had to end their life early but it still doesn't feel
0: right. It doesn't feel like justice was served, you know? Yeah, it really doesn't. Part of the trial process that is beautiful, a beautiful thing is the family getting to stand up there at the end of the trial after they're found guilty and give their statements of what, you know, how this fucker has, uh, you know, what they've done to their lives and their family. They do the grief that they've suffered because of their selfishness and their disgusting acts. Like you wish they could have gotten to do that to really make him sit there and, and deal with that. Um, Yeah. whether he would have cared or not. We talked about he's a sociopath, so who knows? He was living a double life for so long that maybe he could just separate that from reality. Well, I'm sure he could, but that doesn't make it easier on his family. His wife, his kids, I'm sure, would like
1: to have answers. Yeah. You know, would like to have closure from him. And, I mean, just as a child, moving on with a father who committed something like this, you would just want to know that he at least loved you, I guess. I don't know. It's... it's hard to put yourself in that situation. But I know it's yeah. got to be hard growing up with a parent who was this horrible of a person and not being able to get some type of answers or some type of reasoning as to why they turned out that way other than just genetics. You don't want to think mm-hmm. that you're next. You know what I'm saying? And and when this parent or this, this person, this family member takes their life, it just kind of leaves it all open. You don't get to yeah. talk to them, even if it's in prison You know, I I just like to think that if I had a father or a grandfather that was accused of of crimes this atrocious, I would need to talk to them. What made you feel this way? What changed? At what age did you start having these urges? I want to know all these things. And Mm -hmm. his family, his son, his daughters, they don't get any of that. They don't get any of that. They just just have to
0: wonder, am I going to end up being crazy like my dad? He just added one more selfish act to his, you know... Many that he had committed over his life by taking his own life before he had to face justice. Yeah. So absolutely.
1: Another shit. All right, taking the easy way out. That's oh, right. but you know what? Don't don't take, the take easy don't, way don't out take the easy the way out
0: with your armpits.
1: No, no, no. Go the organic, the paraben and aluminum-free way with Oh My Gaia. Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. That's the key, guys. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And guys, there's tons of scents uh, to choose from here at Oh My Gaia, whether you want your beard oil or your scented oil or your deodorant. There's tons of things. To choose from to fit your fancy, what from vanilla to cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, uh, which is what I'm wearing today, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, bergamot, amber, barber shop, uh, sweet pea, pear, sailor. And because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the word creeper for 15% off your order. And if you don't know where to start, I forgot to mention we have our very own scent, True Crime Pine. I don't know how I forgot True Crime Pine. Gotta have a jar of True Crime Pine sitting around made just for your True Crime You just crime saved the guys. best for last. No big deal. That's all. That's all I did. That's right. But because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, like I said, 15% off your order with the code word creeper. C-R-E-E-P-E-R at shop underscore ohmygaia on instagram or you can go to oh com. that's dot com. you guys won't regret it give it a shot do
0: it all right all right uh, i want to thank some new reviews yeah i want to thank the couple people that have talked taking the time to go and rate and review the show this week um I want to say thank you to No Likey, yet again, who keeps re- leaving review after review. I well, Good for you. Working the system, getting shout-outs every week. Um, yeah, like Likey says, loyal listener and Patreon binger. So th- since you're a patron member, I'll definitely still give you a shout-out, too. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. And then we have Merg1994, Merg1994 says, the best, five stars. The only thing my ex-boyfriend was good for was introducing me to this podcast. <laughs> I've been a Uh-oh. fan, an avid listener for over two years now. Love you guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. that's great see sometimes your exes can leave you with good stuff
0: right <laughs> love it well well uh also if you want more of us if you want more patreon uh, or, i mean if you want more true crime guys check out our patreon page patreon.com slash true crime guys two bucks a month get you access to our once a month premium uh patreon only episode which we tend to do bigger name episodes a lot of uh heavy hitter serial killers and all that stuff there's I don't know how many how many recordings are on Patreon at this point. Uh, probably a couple hundred. Oh my god! Um, between just the uh, banter, which we do every Friday at the five dollar tier, yep. you get to hear us just hang out for thirty minutes to an hour and answer listener questions and yeah. get to know us a little bit more. This past uh, Friday, we released episode fifty-two, just the banter, a year's yep. worth of just the banter's. Yep. And, uh, if you if you love uh, merch from your favorite podcast we have uh, gold stickers available to five dollar tier as well as getting access to all of our uh, premium content that's right I um, mean at the ten dollar tier you can hang out with us once a month we get on zoom and hang out with the creepers for 30 minutes and talk about whatever anything we get to know you guys um, so yeah that's all available on patreon two two through ten dollars get you all that and you can you can pay up front too for if you want to do the two dollar tier it's 21 dollars and you have a full year and you're done
1: and it's fifty-four at the five dollar tier and then a hundred and eight at the ten dollar tier for a whole year uh, yep. worth of true crime guys Patreon content. And like we said, we that gives you access to our one month exclusive episode, just the banter every week. And we get to have a Zoom call once a month as well. So if but if you're That's already right. a already a patron of True Crime Guys and you're all caught up on everything that True Crime Guys has to offer, we have other shows on our network now. Check out Strange and Unexplained. Wherever you listen, Uh, if you just search True Crime Guys in your podcast app or whatever, it it should show up there. You'll see Strange and Unexplained. You'll see our orange and teal colors with our uh, T-Rex skeleton there on the logo. And it's where we focus on unsolved, missing persons, and just strange phenomena, cult classics, uh, but a lot of unsolved cases on there, which we don't typically touch on True Crime Guys. That just gives us another outlet um, to cover those cases on there. And it's a little bit different format than True Crime Guys. Uh, I come on, I host, I bring you the facts, I bring you my opinion at the end, and then you get to hear from Lorne, who studied completely separate from me, just like we do on True Crime Guys, and you get to hear his opinion and how he feels about the case, and then we kind of see if we agree or disagree, and it's kind of cool. You kind of get some extra perspectives on every single case. But again, that's strange and unexplained wherever you listen. And don't forget about our fantasy football podcast, right Lorne?
0: That's right. Full House Fantasy Podcast. Full House Fantasy Football Podcast, uh, hosted by me and my buddy Tori. Every Thursday night, we get together after the Thursday night game and talk fantasy football, our lineups in the upcoming week, starts and sits. Yep. You name it, all things fantasy. Um. And yeah, check that out. Uh, Full House Fantasy Football. It's available everywhere. Right on, guys. And
1: as always, there's links to everything that we have plugged right below the description right here. Click on True Crime Guys link tree. And you guys will see links to our merch, our Spotify, uh, different
0: Patreon pages, and all of our other shows. All right? Yep, and all of the uh, sources from the cases that we just did. You you can find the book that I used to study this case. The link to that is in there. And then the different articles that I used as well. Yep. It's all right there, guys. See you guys next week. Keep creeping. Have a great week. Keep creeping, guys.
1: True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. If you clicked on us, cause you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk, get you. I'm talking to the creeper army, we out here, make it murder, get better, get better. True crime true guys. in the desert, we like a garage It's okay if you clicked on us, cause you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk, get you. I'm talking to the creeper army, we out here, make it better, charming.